Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. It is Bridger and Melissa in our, well, we always say, I don't know why we give like the location of our recordings. To locate us in time and space. Yeah, we're <laughs> recording this today. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but we are picking back up in our um, Back to Basics season. Uh, we're going to finish chapter three today, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. The goal. Um, but uh, for those that have been following along, this is just straight out of Francine's uh, third edition, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, sort of the, you know, if there was a manual for this, this would be it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, Jen and I kind of did the first half and Melissa and I are going to finish um, the third chapter today by talking about working through targets. Mm-hmm. And target selection. Yep, target selection, working through targets, and so much more as we'll get into it. Yeah. So if people want to, you know, like read along as we're talking, we're going to start on the bottom of 71. That's right. The- Standard three pronged EMDR yes. protocol. So open your hymnals to page 71. <laughs> That's right. Begin singing standard three prong EMDR. Bottom right protocol. paragraph. <laughs> yes. Um, so, so Bridger, I, I have a question. When you when you started reading this, what was just kind of your general um, feeling about how target selection has been taught, um, how you actually experienced this in real life? You know, remembering what it was like at the beginning for you. What what kind of struck you as you read this? So, for me, I have like so much in mind, as I would assume you do as well. Of like when I'm reading this, I'm thinking of conversations with consultees, I'm thinking about our trainings, I'm thinking about my own practice, I'm thinking about my, you know, my clients. Um, And for me, I feel like there's so much importance in EMDR around even what is a target, let alone selecting a target and then actually working through it, that I feel like it's, it's such a major component, but it's so just assumed that we all like know what we're talking about. And when I say target, you know that I mean a memory and that that means, you know, whatever. And so that was what I think stood out the most was, I wonder how much we assume we know about the concept of target inside EMDR and what it means to, you know, map a target and its interconstellation out and then actually start working through it with this hope and belief that in that process, the person will get better. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what stood out for me first. Interesting. Yeah. What about you? Um, one of the things that really stood out was this pattern that I'm picking up on um, in pretty much every chapter so far where there's these sentences here and there that sort of signal forward that the protocol is going to have to be modified but there's not a lot of information in the basic description of the protocol of what those modifications might be or why they might be relevant. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) 
So, and, but the, you know, yes, the information is in the book, you know, like there's a couple of spots here where she references chapter 11 and points forward and, um, editorially, I understand why that is done that way, but I think experientially, um, maybe in basic trainings, we, we end up mirroring that habit mm. of teaching the basics, but saying you might have to change this. Yeah. And but putting we'll off the explanation <laughs> of what that means, like, yeah, well, well, we'll get to it later or, or someday you'll figure it out or, you know, you know on day five of the training, yeah, we'll somehow yeah, when, when make time so, for it. That's right. When, you, when you're so exhausted, you can barely see straight. That's when we're going to get to <laughs> Uh, the most complicated bit of this, right? Which might actually be like every case you see. Every case. And, and so I think that's where <laughs> I was really sort of feeling as I was reading this is the, the pedagogical challenge mm. of how to present the basics in a really um, thorough but clear way that can be integrated by brand new clinicians, but then also having an honest humility about the limitations of that protocol and giving enough nuance for people to really make meaning of when we're going to have to make those changes. And I think the truth is it's probably a unsolvable conundrum, but I think you and I are going to try today a little bit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, to imagine, you know, maybe, maybe there's a different way of teaching the basic protocol that would prepare people better for what ends up being the usual scenario that we encounter because acute single incident trauma is not the usual scenario. No. And I think, and just to start the episode off with like some bang. controversy, I think that I, I question the lived reality of single incident trauma. Right. As, as I think it's taught, not, not to say that somebody might come in to your office and say this thing just happened and it's really bothering me mm -hmm. i think that's absolutely true i've seen it in my office many times but what i mean is that as you get into target work you quickly realize why that single incident was so difficult for that person right. and that then totally and beautifully i think in a lot of ways makes more realistic but more complicated right. the case that you're working on yeah, I think an example of that is, you know, we, we would expect that a really bad car accident would be impactful to most people, right? So yes, that, that can happen, but the meaning that is made of that experience is very unique and based on that person's previous life. So for instance, in the same car wreck, the person driving the car might variously feel tremendous guilt and responsibility or might come to the conclusion that the world is not a safe place and I shouldn't be out in it. Or they might come to the conclusion that other people are against me and I'm a constant victim of their incompetence. And what determines which of those three they land on? Yeah. Because <laughs> maybe like any of those could be possible, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the answer to that is their previous lived experience, which is why- But not in a predictive way. That was, yeah. that was the piece that I loved that Jen and I got to get into that as well, that there is just no means of predicting mm -hmm. how somebody will interpret something. And that's what makes this work to me just so fascinating and human and beautiful and scary and weird. And, you know, just all of those things, because even of those three responses, what happens if the person just walks away from that saying, golly, that was a crazy, a crazy thing that happened. And they don't seem to show any signs of trauma, quote unquote. Right. But they're just like, no, I mean, I, I, you know, it just happened. It was a day and I'm thankful that I'm alive. I got to go home and see my family. And um, when you look at the details of the crash, you're like, are you sure? Like, you're okay? Yeah. And you're just like, yeah. 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 I had a family recently that was in a terrible wreck. And I was quite sure that we were going to have to do a lot of reprocessing. Yeah. They came in and everybody, like, I could not find any activation in any of them. And the conclusion that I came to, they, the, the story that the family had wrapped around this was what mattered is that we were all okay afterwards and that we could be together. So they, like, immediately went into this, like, familial resourcing situation. Yes, exactly. And, oh. You know, it, it buffered them from the potential PTSD of that moment. 
Um, and so there really wasn't anything to be done. Um, yeah, you're just like, notice that. That's great. Like, <laughs> yeah, good job. Good job right? right? Um, and, you know, so I, I like your point that it's really, really hard to predict. Um, and so even in those cases where things seem very acute, there's still this need to understand the individual in a greater context than that one event. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think in that we're being very um, direct in kind of the way we at Beyond even understand what a target represents. It's not the specifics of the memory. It's the meaning. And then that grabs onto whatever specifics that it needs to. Mm -hmm. And that's different than how a lot of people are trained. So, Well, speaking of how a lot of people are trained, let me bring your attention <laughs> to the top of page 72. Okay. <laughs> I, I must point Case out point. <laughs> all important sentence. Asking clients to designate their 10 most disturbing memories of childhood allows them to sort through and consolidate their past experience into manageable targets. I too Thoughts? had this uh, <laughs> this uh, suspiciously yeah. underlined. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So so j just to make note of this, because if you're not familiar with that concept uh, in the world of EMDR, it's top called the ten. ten. <laughs> it's the top ten list, and it, it really used to be uh, systematically taught in most basic trainings that this was how you found targets that you know, hi, nice to meet you, and then after maybe a handful of you know sessions of getting to know them and building some resourcing, you ask them to do this homework where they go home and they identify the 10 worst things they've ever experienced and they write them down and then they rate um, how bad each one was on that scale from zero to 10. And that is apparently supposed to direct you to the most salient targets to get the most generalized yeah. shift uh, in their system, which um, is, is quite disturbing to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so this is interesting and I, I don't think I've gotten to like process this with you, but um, I had a consultee that was trained in their basic training decades ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, in like the early 2000s and had been using EMDR for a long time, pretty consistently and didn't really see the need in being certified. They were like, no, I'm, you know, I, I love this. I'm good with it. I don't want to just go on to get more training because that's what I'm supposed to do. Like I, she, she went on to do more training in somatic work and internal family systems, very common like trajectory. But she said, I didn't realize how dissonant and tense the way of doing EMDR that I was trained in doing was until I started doing it this other way. Because right. she was like, I would do the, the top 10 and then we would always start with the first and the worst and the most recent. And I didn't know, like her if body, I loved how she anymore. said it. Yeah. And I can't <laughs> do her language justice. So if you're listening to this episode, I'm sorry. But um, she said, like the, what I took away was, what I took away from it was she, she didn't know in her body how different it, mm. it could feel. Because she said, yeah, I would have to do some stabilization and we would kind of process through like, oh, that was a lot to do that homework, wasn't it? And she would kind of normalize it that way. But she said, I just thought that that's how you are supposed to do it. I didn't know that there was any other way. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a important conversation for me because even though we think that that's super intense and really prone to re-traumatization very just rough way of doing this. I think for a lot of years and still today, it's kind of taught as the way yeah. that you do target mapping. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you know, what's fascinating to me is like when you, when you really read what Shapiro is saying, she's not suggesting that that is a good idea for everybody, but there's sort of this basic assumption that most clients are going to be well-resourced enough to do that. Yeah. Right. And and I, I I have this feeling that maybe it's just a cultural shift that has mm. been made in the last handful of decades where the level of awareness of what is actually traumatic, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so referencing things like the ACEs study, et cetera, um, attachment trauma, somatic psychology, like as all of these things are developing, we just have a totally different frame of reference when it comes to what might be traumatic and and how mindful we need to be of that. And so right. 
you know, I think this attitude of like, well, yeah, grab the 10 biggest things because that's going to get you the most bang for your buck was Even really the way you said of, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but I, I get it because that, you know, sure. the, the achiever in me says, well, yeah, that would absolutely um, move a lot of material in somebody's body in a short amount of time. And if they can handle it, it's incredibly effective and efficient. Yeah. But the percentage of clients that can do that well, I really believe is pretty low. And the other thing that's very true is that because of the, the shifts and changes in our field and all of the you know, research that has been done, we have ways that are a lot more effective that mm. can get results just as quickly that have a much lower risk of re-traumatization. And yeah. frankly, just make a lot more sense neurologically. But that's Absolutely. that's one of the things that I, I think the field of VMDR is kind of in a moment with is, oh, we need a pretty thorough update, yeah. right? Like the way that we begin is, is makes sense for then, but we really have to reconsider why we're doing what we're doing in a very granular way to really bring it up to speed with where the research is now, which, you know, that's a huge value that we have here at Beyond. Also, I would say that's one of my like top reasons why I believe so much in certification mm -hmm. because it's really time consuming and challenging for an individual therapist to know, like, how do I keep up with that research? What should I be tracking and following and knowing? Yeah. Some and how does it change my approach? Like, yeah. that's like a two sided thing for me is like, how do you keep up with the ongoing discovery of what EMDR is and could be? And then how do you actually make that applicationable? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of my favorite examples of that, which I've had so many conversations and I know how hard this is for people. <laughs> I love <laughs> I mean, this preface. Right. Like it, it, it's challenging in a very deep way um, is the concept that at the beginning of EMDR, it became this sort of cultural thing where everybody was taught that after every set, we say, take a breath and let it go. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like this was Someone, yeah, I had someone say recently, um, well, that was like EMDR law, <laughs> as if there was such a thing, right? That's right. Um, and But it really is kind of taught that way. It's like, you know, above all else, make sure you do these things. Well, that is not actually in the protocol, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of those uh, kind of affectations that got adopted as somehow the right thing to do in every case. And we have a lot of reason from a neuro perspective of why that's not a good fit in every case yeah and why it can be um really troublesome to the process if overused which using it in every set means that we're overusing it right yes without um, intention it's just yeah, being yeah. applied and and like those kinds of moments of like yeah we don't do that anymore you know i mean that that those are the conversations that we get to have in certification and hopefully we can do that in a really relational and loving way of like, this is the way you were taught. You haven't been doing anything wrong. We just can do better now because we know better and, and our science has been updated. Um, yeah. And that's a big part of what we try to do in certification is like we do that research and try to disseminate it so that it's a whole lot easier <laughs> for yeah. other people to integrate. Exactly. And I think that with, you know, just uh, you made a point before we started recording that I thought was really important, which is that you know EMDR in a large sense was made for one well, this is me now even like reinterpreting what you said but EMDR was made for the managed healthcare system yeah which is very you know intended to at least be as effective as possible in a short term application if it's able to be used in a long term application that's great but it was really designed to be as effective as possible in a short term application well, what that means, just from an information processing standpoint, even is that it's favoring, ooh, it's favoring reduction, yeah. rather than expansion. And that, to me, is one of the pitfalls of the managed healthcare system. Not to soapbox it, but you know, just to recognize that these are assumptions that are baked into the to the basic protocol. And in this, you know, 400, almost 600 page uh, book, if you strung out the table of contents on a spectrum, you see that it was front loaded with the single incident, simple case way of doing EMDR. And then over the course of the work, it 
started to accommodate more of the intricacies, more of the nuance, more of the accommodations and adjustments that need to be made for these specific populations. And I want to read just a section from that chapter 11 where Francine's talking about working with complex PTSD and just flat out says, since there, there being a person with complex PTSD, since their upbringings gave them little or no sense of a solid foundation, the clinician should attempt to provide an oasis where they feel safe in revealing their thoughts and emotions. And it says that on page 289, <laughs> where I don't know how many people you think read the basic, read this text before the basic training, but I bet you they don't make it to 289 pages before right. the basic training if they do even read it. And if they do, they would have to know why that's so significant. Exactly. Which like, you can barely know when you have when to fold and put yeah. back together, like, oh, this is actually a comment for all the way back on page 72. <laughs> like that's you know that that's just so hard from even just a just a social emotional learning perspective to remember that oh these are presented linearly because it's a book but really it's being made concurrently hmm. so there's another piece that um you know i i love that way of saying it of the protocol is presented in a way that was the most fitting for a managed health care system because that's really you know where most of our work has been happening for a very long time and still is to some degree and yet the field is changing quite a bit yeah and certainly our understanding of how long-term work um versus short-term work is uh just a different thing entirely so what what we can name pretty clearly is that in a short-term situation emdr can effectively be used as an intervention to reduce distress yes so if our goal as a therapist is focused on distress reduction, then we can use it that way. But what I want to challenge is why is our goal distress reduction? Mm -hmm. Why is our goal not something more holistic? Like integration. Like integration. <laughs> yeah. or, or one of the phrases that I use with clients a lot is, um, my idea of what it means to be healthy is that all parts of me get to express themselves honestly in as many situations as possible. Yes. That has very little to do with distress reduction. <laughs> no, it almost assumes that you're going to go through distress. <laughs> like Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it really kind of turns the paradigm on our head. And so I think that our field as a whole is kind of in this um, moment of really shifting our understanding of in order to do complex uh, PTSD work, severe attachment trauma, mm. um, and really do personality restructuring and integration this goal of distress reduction is going to be confusing to us. Yeah. Right. We, we have to have a different um, standard and roadmap that we're using to make sense of what we're doing. Absolutely. And when we modify the EMDR protocol away from distress reduction and towards personality integration, that's what tells us how and when we're going to make modifications to the protocol. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I think Francine is pretty transparent, even in using like on page 72. Um, in my own practice, I prefer if the client consents to target the most upsetting childhood incidents first. My rationale is that by preparing the client for the worst eventuality and highest level of distress, there are no surprises later. I think that that for me, and just honestly, if a consultee said that to me, my response would be, I wonder how often though surprises do come mm -hmm. and how quickly that exposes the fantasy of front-loading distress like that i mean it to me it just is obliterated even by what's said later in the text that i just read from where what about this oasis that doesn't sound like oasis to me <laughs> like that sounds like a fantasy to some degree and if our you know if as the clinician our bias is that they should be able to do that that is going to affect the decision making absolutely i love that point that yeah. if we want them yeah i don't need to reset it you said it very well <laughs> um that is just hitting me um where i think that's our own dismissive orientation towards affect distress 
Yes. That, well, let's go through it now to make sure that we can handle it and then that you can handle yourself as we continue this work. As if the goal was to handle myself well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And be able to face all of the stuff and not to react, right? I'm hearing like uh, some parenting philosophy in there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. And you're also he uh, probably hearing like the deep wounding of the four that's pissed off all the time that people are telling me to contain myself, right? Yeah, it's exactly. Like, oh, my pain is valid and you that's will hear right. it, right? That's right. Uh, I don't need to handle it any differently. <laughs> right. It's bothering you. It's not bothering me. Love uh, that. So, you know, I'll own my bias in that, that I uh, don't prefer containment. I don't use the container because I'm a four and I don't think we need to contain ourselves at all. <laughs> there it is. Honesty. That's, that's honest. Um, I do provide containment when needed, but it is relationally preference. Yes. <laughs> Relational Not, containment. Here's a container, fit yourself into it yeah, and then come back when you're ready. It by yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are times and places where the container is very appropriate, but nice um, caveat. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> important what it is. Fidelity. I know it. Fidelity. <laughs> um, so, okay, to reorient us back to the point, there is a bit of conversation that I want to have because as we sort of deconstruct and blow up the way that <laughs> this was originally taught, um, what I don't want to do is sort of leave people in the conundrum of, well, shit, what do I do now, right? right. How do I navigate and make decisions? If I don't do the top 10, what do I do instead? And so it feels imperative that we attempt to answer that question. And the way that we attempt to do it is really based on our best known research right now that is relevant to the work that we do as EMDR clinicians, right? Mm -hmm. Like what is the science actually saying about what it means to make edits to the human nervous system that have long lasting healthful implications? Um, so I, the, the way that they talk about it, that Spirit talks about it is this idea of clustering targets. Yes. And so I kind of want to spend some time with this idea of finding clusters, what targets get clustered, why are we doing it that way? And is there a way of making sense of that um, that matches our actual neurobiology and information processing systems that might really give us a good guide on how to choose and move through targets effectively? Mm -hmm. There's a um, adage from metaphysics that is what is true in the most complex is true in the most simple. And that is a really important reminder for me that, okay, Shapiro is diligent to detail the modifications necessary in complex presentations. And that's where this language of clustering and moving away from a single incident conceptualization comes from. So why don't we try and interpret back into the simple what seems to be the salve and holding oasis for the complex. And so I think, you know, you and I use slightly different language here, meaning very much the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, this is something that I have just so, I don't know, like ubiquitously adopted in all of my casework where I want my clients to understand the role of memory in their lived experience on a day-to-day -day basis. That sure. memory isn't a chronicled newspaper clipping file of every moment that's ever happened to you. It's associative and representative, being that you're going to remember what you need in order to feel secure and safe and connected and what to do if those things aren't available to you. And that really is for me what I want them to understand as intimately as they can, because I think just in that process of understanding these core themes of their life or these schemas that they can then start to pre and, you know, kind of anticipate or pre anticipate um, where some of these targets are really coming from, like why that memory was distressing or why it seems to be coming up now. Um, yeah. So to, to highlight the language that you and I use differently, but we mean the same thing. Um, you, you use the word theme, so does Jen. Mm. I use the word schema quite a bit because, uh, because of my body background, like we talk about body yeah. schemes. Body themes doesn't really make as much sense. <laughs> doesn't sound as good for sure. <laughs> no. um, and, when, and when you bring the body into the equation, the schema uh, concept gets to hold this idea of a body map that really mm -hmm. 
you know, tells us how to walk, talk, move, interact, hold ourselves, breathe, yeah. navigate, you know, every aspect of our world, we have an internally held map for that. Yeah. Um, I use map as well. And I love that you brought up backgrounds because for me, trained in cognitive neuroscience, like that cognitive schema is what right. I think of when I hear the word schema. And that's like, that's not what I want to. Not what you're doing. No, <laughs> I'm talking way, body Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's a beautiful way of just like modeling. Hey, let's like figure out what we mean by the language we use because. Well, maybe, maybe to, to simplify it for here, let's, let's stay with map. Because I, love I, map. I use map. I, I feel like, yeah, I feel like map holds all of the, the meaning that both of us uh, yeah. intend and is also, frankly, a much more relatable word than schema and doesn't require so much or nuance. Or theme, really. Like, <laughs> that's true, that's true. Yeah, what do you mean by theme? What, what kind of theme? So, yeah. so if, we, if we hold to that concept of map, let's talk for a minute about why do both you and I really feel so inclined towards um, conceptualizing our mm. work with inner maps in mind, these internal maps? Why do they become so essential? I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, did you have a way you wanted to go? Because that, I feel like the <laughs> the the mm -hmm. thrusters beginning, like right, I'm gonna, right. like, take Power off up. here. Power <laughs> up. Nope. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, so a little bit of anchoring and foundational concepting before we blast off. Yeah. So, um, anchoring into an image that maybe people can visualize and hold as we have this conversation. If we sink into that concept of map and feel all the symbolism of what a map does is that it holds a symbolic reality in front of us mm. and allows us to navigate in familiar and unfamiliar terrain. Mm -hmm. right? it, can, it can do all of that. The other thing that is true about mapping is the process of mapping is that in order to create the map you have to go there yeah right you have to go and explore before we can have a map somebody actually has to go to that place yep. traverse the <laughs> terrain yes and and mark down the landmarks where are the rivers and the rocks and the things that are relevant and and take all the measurements and now we can have a workable map and so i think all of that symbolism is about yeah. to come there in the way that we talk about this yeah and not to belabor like the metaphor but it just is so um rich with symbolism because in that way maps are presented in a stagnant you know here's how it is which if you think of again just the way you talked about going through reality maps take a long time to make and so what was true just a moment ago uh, or a year ago when the map, when this area of the map was first explored, things may have changed, but not for the purposes of the map being made, that it can, it can change and it can adapt, but the map doesn't reflect those changes or adaptations necessarily. And so what we're doing as EMDR therapists is almost like pointing to an area of the map and saying, let's explore this. And is what was mapped the way that serves the utility of the map now uh, in the present, or do we need to start making kind of some modifications to it and really remap it? Yeah, which is what we're trying to do. In That's EMDR what we do. Time, yeah. Right. Like, is the map that I'm working from that was necessarily created by my past still relevant for my present? And will it serve me in my future? Mm -hmm. and, and in the areas where the answer to that is no, right? The past map is not functioning well in my present, and I'm worried about what it's going to do in my future. That is where we're going to target. Mm -hmm. That is the area of the map that needs attention and updating. Yeah. And in order to do that updating, we have to go to that area in their body. We have to go to that terrain and revisit it so that those updates can actually be made. Yeah. Yes. I, I completely agree. Um, trying to stick to the text and not go <laughs> rather trailing off into directions yes really um, points. yeah <laughs> because okay so let's talk about maybe this is the way so let's talk about targets in relation to these maps okay so for me 
sticking with this map um, metaphor world that we're going to kind of apply all this to, targets to me represent very important locations on the map and very dense and complex representations on the map that, oh, this area of the map, yeah, it was this, 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 and this memory that made me feel this sort of way about what's on this map. And what we're going to do in target sequencing or even discovery is figure out like, what is the point, what is the way we're trying to use this map now? And what targets seem to be justifying the way of using that map as it currently feels to your body. And as we pick up those targets, they are there for very specific reason. And this is kind of on page 75 is kind of where we're going to start applying some of this. And there's a figure at the top of 75 that represents associative channels. And it's a kind of like a, a oval at the top that says target node. And then it has these seven different um, branches coming off of it that represent different things that could be associated with that target. It always this looks is, like a hair pick to me. I know. Yeah, it does. Yeah, like a little <laughs> or a comb. Yeah, yeah, like a yeah. hair comb, hair pick situation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like a little beret or something. Yeah. Um, so in working with these targets, um, the text describes them as there could be these various elements of the target that link to other targets that have, you know, very specific reason for holding the distress, holding the, the memory, the, the worst part, the negative cognition, all of those things, the feeling of it, whatever, that when you actually activate a target, that these things can come alive and start to uh, you know, change the way that the target is being processed in the client. Um, what do you think about kind of doing it that way, going from what targets represent on the map? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I, I think what is a little challenging for me is that um, target has almost always been taught as it is a, a memory, right? Yes, just a memory. Just, just a memory. And to say, well, that's not true, it can be so much more than that, is oversimplified because the, what is accurate as far as the body concerned is concerned is that all of these different elements um, in terms of associative channels that that is all memory, mm-hmm. right? Like the, it's all um, made of the same material in terms of how information is stored and utilized in our body, that explicit narrative memory is just one form. Right. And um, so I, you know, I don't want to say that targets can be things that are more than memory, right? Because it actually all is. So it's, right. to me, when we're talking about um, what a target is, it's really broadening our understanding of what memory is. Right. When I said earlier, just a memory, what I was meaning is that it is reduced down to the shapes and movement of those shapes and the texture of the memory. Like it it goes back to just like what happened. I talk about this with clients that it feels like memory should be the chronological newspaper clipping file of our life. But when we actually start to wake them up, we realize that, oh, there's actually a very specific way that this memory was stored and that it really isn't trying to tell us exactly what happened. It's trying to help us with the meaning of what happened. Right, right. And and it is that meaning of what happened that is usually the most distressing part. That's right. Yeah, that's that. And this is partly theoretical, but in my lived experience as well, definitely tracks that that's why the body is holding on to those specific elements is saying this meaning is justified in our experience through these elements the worst part like all of your assessment details are getting at why that memory feels relevant to that core meaning and its distress and i think you know what we know about how memory is coded is that an increase in emotional intensity signals to the body that this material is more relevant and more important to be referenced in the future uh, which is a survival technique and very effective but also makes us prone to utilizing highly emotional memory as Mm -hmm. reference points for future predictions yeah whether or not they are going to be the most reliable (laughs) yeah like what if on this map there was like an x over a a certain section that said like avoid at all cost yeah you know and it was just like well this is like 
a direct path block from where I am to where I need to be, why is it completely X'd out? Trust me, you just don't want to go there. Yeah, don't, like, don't go. Just, yeah. just don't go there because it's going to be terrible. This is what's going to happen. This is all this stuff. Like That to me is exactly kind of what we're talking about where in the moment, the previous activation is represented on that map, but it's not necessarily linked to real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, just a, a great image there for me is you know how maps are often co color coded and so yeah. like you have these red zones on the map these do not go zones. yes yes and if they're if that color coding happens when we're a child what is considered a red zone when we're a child <laughs> is very different than what's a red zone when i'm you know 44. exactly but if we haven't revisited that material we still have all of these massive red zones that we're reacting to as if they're a danger to us but then yeah. when we finally walk back up to it it's like oh no i can just jump over this i'm like so much taller than i used to be, <laughs> yeah right? exactly yeah <laughs> which you know is a, a great reduction of what the process actually feels like but i do think it's pretty accurate in terms of what happens when we revisit the material of the past Sure, absolutely. And seeing that, you know, a map that we pull out in adulthood has all these red zones that it's almost blotted out. It's like, well, maybe we should start to kind of work our way through this and see really what's true now. Because we've grown, we have so many different resources. I think we're gonna I think we're gonna be okay to start exploring some of this. Okay, so I'm thinking of a kid story that I have to tell just because it's so relevant and it happened like last night. I'll keep it short. So <laughs> Anora is in bed and she gets out of bed and she is constantly thinking of reasons why she needs to talk to me when she's supposed to be going to sleep. So she comes and gets me and this time it's, Mommy, when I'm as big as you, will I be able to know who's a bad guy? Oh. So this is like a hell of a question at 9.30 at night, right? Yeah, lots of layers. <laughs> so many layers. But like, I feel like this is um, exactly <laughs> what we're talking about in some ways because as a parent, I have red zoned her map like crazy, mm -hmm. right? Like, don't worry about it. You don't need to know about this. You don't need to know about that. I'm just going to put big blockades all around it, right? Yeah. And what I ended up telling her is something along the lines of, do you remember when you were three and I always made you hold my hand when we were in a parking lot? Do you remember why? Yeah, because I could get smushed by a car, <laughs> right? Yes. So when she was three, parking lots are a red zone. Oh, yeah. Right now at six, I have released her hand, right, and give her permission to walk herself through the parking lot because I trust her to watch for the cars that are coming, right? So this red zone has been demoted to a yellow zone. Nice. No yeah. caution, right? We're yep. not in full green zone territory, right? But I, I think this is an example of um, maps are meant to be organically and relationally updated yes. with the help of caring Redrawn. and others. Yeah. Yeah. And so if we have someone that's tuned into us and we have the support and the, you know, relational caretaking that we really need, those maps are meant to be organically updated over time, right? So that when she's 16 walking through a parking lot uh, is a green zone that she doesn't really need to worry about other than most basic self-awareness, right? Far less smushable at 16. Far, far less smushable at 16 and much more self-aware of exactly. surroundings. But there's still some zones that as a parent, I hope they stay red zones forever. Now, can I manage that? No. no. <laughs> but right, that I think I think that conceptualizing it that way of this is meant to be relationally updated. And sometimes what we find ourselves doing as a therapist is doing some of that relational updating that a parent or a caregiver might have done to mm -hmm. shift those red zones to yellow zones to green zones, right? And, and those are interweaves. Those are resources, yep. right? Those are little things that we're adding in. That make that redrawing yeah. possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, in many ways, we've, we, we've done very well with this chapter, uh, moved pretty efficiently, <laughs> because the map really does provide an excellent metaphor for the, the remaining components of the chapter. Um, yeah. I'm just looking well, through here. So, so here's a piece that I want to make sure that we sort of name explicitly. When a client comes in and says, I want to do EMDR, the old way would have said something like, write down your top <laughs> said, 10 cool, recipes. here's this list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah right? And, and we effectively would have laid out the map and said, okay, we're going to go for the reddest, biggest, baddest zone. Yeah. And 
because if, if we get that red zone turned to a green one, it's going to generalize and everything else will go green. This whole path. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and that's, you know, that that is actually true if we can manage to do that. But the the way that we prefer, which we believe is softer, safer, and yeah. actually just as efficient, is to see um, what zones of their life are currently really difficult for them to navigate and are requiring energy expenditure that they would really like to reclaim, mm -hmm. right? And based on their current lived experience, will be drawn to a particular zone on their map. Yeah. And once we're drawn to that zone on the map, the first phase of treatment really is about just kind of getting the lay of the land and uh, taking note of where those red zones are, right? Where those struggle spots are, and also where things are going really well, because we're going to have to rely on that too. Um, and so choosing targets, um, the cluster of targets for us is really about understanding where we are on the map. Yeah. And not trying to cover the whole terrain randomly. Yes. We can, we can really focus in and be strategic about clearing zones of that map so that they get results in that particular area that they're really concerned about. Yeah, and the results, just to continue to clarify, <clears throat> working this way, the results aren't just reprocessing memory, but also resourcing so that generalization can just naturally take place. I say this on page 76 and 77, um, there's a section on the dominant physical sensations. Uh, and this is one of the associative channels that a target node could be activating. And I think this is a great example of how in the single incident approach, even our means of discovering the worst part and the negative cognitions and the degree of distress only get us so far. Because in this section, she's talking about an example of a client who in their wrists is held the representation of what she names as sense of violation and danger and goes through several memories that we won't necessarily read right now but goes through several memories that justify that and i want us to think just very openly about that what does it mean for in their wrists to be held a sense of violation and danger for me what I wrote down and what I heard, and if this was my client, what I would actually, I would validate that that was maybe our first discovery of what was in the wrists, but those don't sound to me like the real reason that section of the map is marked out in red, mm -hmm. because there's always, to some degree, a threat of danger and a threat of violation. But what these memories actually represented and what I would be curious about with the client of why it's actually marked out in red is that in your wrists is not just held the sense of violation and danger, but the sense of powerlessness and being out of control. This is a way that we talk a lot about in our SIP trainings of learning to listen deeper to our clients because a sense of danger and a sense of violation are, tr are troubling, but they are absolutely catastrophic if you're powerless and out of control. Mm -hmm. If you're resourced and prepared, they're less of a concern. Just like you were talking about with Enora, where in the parking lot at three years old, absolutely. Red zone. Need to hold mommy's hand. Mm -hmm. But at 16, especially having gone through so many moments of being in the parking lot with you and having these moments of watching cars pull out that we didn't know were moving and just being aware of our surroundings, now there's more power and more sense of being in control you still can't ultimately keep bad things from happening, but you are prepared and you know how to be in the environment in a safe and you know, relatively stable way. So I make this point because I think just in the standard protocol as it's presented, that reduction that is necessary for a simple and short-term application can make us feel like we have to be content with something that's not quite at the root. But to say, okay, sense of violation and danger, that's what's in your wrists. Mm -hmm. I want to encourage us to hear that there's a reason those things are problems, though. Because they're real in life as mammals. We're always under threat and around every corner could be bad things. But the core of it is actually that those memories, as they're located in her wrists, actually make her convinced that she's powerless and out of control. That's the problem.
with so much respect to not having you know enough space to fully articulate this it's really important to kind of acknowledge that if we don't shift away from that kind of top layer work and mm -hmm. really honor the need to sink deeper than that we run the risk of um missing the deepest realities of the client's pain and in order to do that in order to sink deeply into that reality we have to be ready to hold the truth that the world is not safe for many people that live in it if we can't yeah. tolerate that then we won't know what to do when that reality comes true for our clients yeah and this is where i can like get a little not a little a lot um focused on the social justice issues of being a therapist because if if we're convinced that everybody somehow has the means to live a distress-free life we're not telling ourselves the truth and yeah. we are deeply dishonoring um those individuals realities and so one of the updates that must occur in our protocols is that we are not trying to remove distress we are trying to tell the truth about their life yes right? and when we do that then we can do what you're describing bridger which is sink into the deeper meanings right mm -hmm. not just why did this sting in the moment right and now if we get rid of that sting we've cleared that target but can we go even deeper um and when we're working at that deep layer, then any target, any door that we go in has the capacity to generalize in profound ways. Absolutely. Because it's sort of like, you know, if you're working the topsoil, not much is going to happen anywhere else. But when you get into the groundwater, anything you do at that level is going to have uh, generalized effects, effects and globalized effects all over their life. And, mm -hmm. and that is why I really don't care what target we're using half the time. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. <laughs> Which, which, which feels dishonoring to clinicians early in the process that really need guidance. And I want to name that. Like, I, I don't want to suggest that you just should wing it every time because at the beginning, it doesn't feel that way. But well, yeah, and you're not talking about winging it. I no, think that's, that's the way that they could interpret that. But you're talking about actually, and Francine gets into this in the text, where it's like a skilled clinician may spend less time worrying about which target we're working on. Because, and that's because, because point. exactly and that's to me the whole thing of just such a beautiful element of emdr certification when it's done really well is it validates the insistence that a beginning clinician may have on the basic protocol as it places so much importance on hey get your targets clarified listed out and to zero as quickly as possible whereas as you grow as a clinician you start to see that there are reasons why these targets are there in the first place. And maybe we could actually turn our attention to that and get ahead of all of this, you know, quibbling over these different targets and their assessment value and all of this stuff. Like maybe we could actually not have to do that. Yeah. So maybe kind of as a wrap up, there's two things that I want to say. One is about SIP and how this conversation just highlighted why we wrote SIP. <laughs> yes, and why it's <laughs> it, so important. <laughs> yeah, like if you, if you want to know, you know, how do you sink in? The, the truth is, is that EMDR basic training can't teach you that, not because it's not embedded in the, in the protocols, but because we don't have time, right? By, yeah. by the time we get through all the material that we must in basic, there's really not space to also teach the deep conceptualization, which is where SIP comes in. Um, and, and really was the heart of why we wrote it, because we saw that struggle in ourselves and in so many other clinicians as we were talking yeah. to them. Um, but I, I want to tell this like brief little story about a client, because I think this is, it was like such a, uh, like working at that groundwater level of like mm. weird cave system. Yeah. <laughs> kind of moment. So we had done some like top layer work around uh, history with abusive family. We had cleared you know several different targets it was going very well and she had visualized all of it as um rooms in a house and we we're clearing each room and we get to the last door in the hallway on this particular day and she opens the door and what is inside instead of a room is the vast cosmos sparkling with stars <laughs> and she opens her eyes and she says to me where do we go from here <laughs> 
And I said, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And she said, I guess just in. <laughs> nice. Yes. <laughs> and so that's what we did. Notice that. And so she walks into this door. And what emerged, emerged after that was the, the targeting and the working with this deep uh, spiritual material that had you know, no direct connection to these events um, in any kind of conscious way. But it was, we were working in like soul terrain, right? And yeah. you hear real spiritual sometimes, and this is why, because it can take us that deep. But that, that picture of um, she opens the door and there's the vast cosmos, where do we go from here? Like that is such a picture of like what this can feel like. And when that happens, I hope that we can all get really excited and see it as yeah. the opportunity that it is rather than panic about how ambiguous it is. <laughs> yeah. And how vast, just like you said, just, I mean, that is to me always within the therapeutic relationship that whether we choose to look at it or not, it's there because we are human beings. <laughs> and but so when two of us, yeah, two of us sit down, you know, it can be the epitome of overwhelming to realize all that's there. But just as you said, I think if, if everything goes the way that it could, that space can feel like the warmest embrace um, where it all kind of just starts to make sense. You know, when that map turns more green than red, and we start to see fluidity and adaptability and flexibility and expansion. Yeah. And that's why we talk about expansion, integration, you know, like that's that's where we want this work to take us. You know, there's so so much more than just reduction of distress about a single memory. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, yeah. I'm rem <laughs> I'm reminded again of that that consultee that I that I brought up at the beginning where she said that if I had known that this was possible, I would have done it differently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, decades of work. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Any concluding feelings? <laughs> yeah. Thoughts I don't know. <laughs> Chapter three is done. Um, Chapter three is done. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that line that you read before we started recording from 83 feels like a good kind of send off. Yeah, yeah. The effectiveness of EMDR therapy depends as much on the quality of the journey as on the designated destination. Precisely. Despite no mention of maps in this book at all, <laughs> the journey we land and with destination. The same metaphor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the journey and destination language is so evident. Yes, yes it is. Well, okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining us on this journey. Yeah. Oh, and if you have made it this far on the episode, um, I was Melissa. You had asked me about the comments on our on our um, on our podcast players and things, and while I hadn't looked at that, I had read um, that because of you all we are like one of the highest ranked uh emdr podcasts which is really cool so thank you so much for your continued support and please share yeah. the podcast with people mm -hmm. um we're really excited to be iTunes, yeah all yeah that stuff. <laughs> yeah exactly all that stuff we're really excited to be in the midst of uh this season and all that will come from it all that is coming from it um, there's many, many more things to come. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.